Hello and welcome to the GSV Accelerate podcast. This podcast is a fireside chat between Michael Moe from GSV and Rick Levin, the former president of Yale and former CEO of Coursera. I hope you enjoy it. So after a 20-year, extremely distinguished career at, as the president of Yale University and then retiring, um, he went out to Silicon Valley to be the CEO of Coursera. What were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking, like many of you think, that um, the potential of online education to reach millions and millions of people and to better their lives was something really worth doing. And it's something I had gotten excited about at Yale years before, experimented with from 2000 to 2003 with a little unsuccessful startup called All Learn, that we, where we put courses out from Yale. Stanford and Oxford for our alumni, got a sense of just how exciting it was for faculty to be able to, to communicate with people all over the world who were just couldn't believe they had access to these amazing uh, educational resources. And so I really believed it was a way of expanding the mission of a great university by scaling up and reaching the world. So I, I was hooked on the idea from way back. And so, you know, six years after the, the MOOC mania began, um, looking at where we are today, what's been better than you thought it was going to be? What's been worse? What's wowed you? What's disappointed you? Okay. Better. What's better, what I just didn't think about as much when I started on this, what's better is the data. I mean, the, the, the power to do more in the future based on the data that we accumulate on uh, from our learners is just remarkable. We can talk about that more in detail later, but the thing that's better is the data. The thing that's worse, I, I, it's not terrible, and I understand how it fits the context, but, you know, there's very high churn. People, people's engagement with online education is very episodic. So you don't have continuous customers. You have somebody comes in, tries a course, maybe samples a course, drops out, and maybe they come back a year later and actually sign up for a course, pay for it, earn a credential, and maybe two years later do something more. But so that it's 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 just um, at the individual customer level, it's not a repeat purchase item, and that that was um, you know in a way disappointing. Um, okay, what's wowed me? Um, what's wowed me? This will seem strange. Is the consistently high quality of the courses on Coursera, and here we being here in. Uh, Cambridge, I'll even say on edX, um, because the, the and it's because of the model, the model which we chose and some other startups did not choose, was to work with universities and let them off, offer the content through our platform. Okay, so if you are, I don't know, the University of California at at uh, San Diego, or you pick a school. Which professors are you going to give the opportunity to go online when it's your, when it's your money you're investing in, in making the courses? Well, you're going to pick your best people. And so we, we've, we, almost by no action of ours, the model was such that we have consistently good, um, you know, have consistently good teachers. And so the quality is just very high. Uh, and what disappointed me, um, was that the last one? Well, you disappoint. I think you kind yeah. of answered it. I mean, the okay. churn, or I guess. Yeah, yeah. And well, no, there is something disappointed me. What disappointed me is the failure of my colleagues in other universities 
to see the potential of this. I mean, Coursera has 150 partners, but I'd say, partner universities, I'd say only about 30 really get it, really understand how much this can mean to their institution. So name those 30. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, no, I, well, I'm sorry. Right. Go for interrupting. You got it. That's, that's the point. Well, and, and we're going to do a little experiment this evening. So I made a reference this morning about the time people spend on their mobile phones from 20 minutes to three hours. And so your three hours is up. So for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, if everybody could put their mobile phone in their pocket, I think it will, it will, it will enhance the, the conversation. Um, I mean, I, I think people have some appreciation for the scale of what's been accomplished by um, Coursera and other MOOCs. But, but give some context here, just in terms of numbers. Students and you talk about 150 universities. I mean, there's some just amazing facts. Yeah. Well, Coursera uh, at this point has 38 million registered learners. Um, because of the high churn, maybe only a quarter of those are active on the platform in any given year. But, but, uh, but there's, um, you know, that's a lot of names. Um, that's a lot of people interested in online education. And we're growing at a, just a steady rate. It's been pretty much constant for, the, for many years now, continual growth. The, um, uh, there's a, over 3,000 courses all across the various fields. Um, and, it's be, you know, the company's become a substantial revenue generator. I, my, we didn't talk about revenue, but my successor did actually drop a number to fortune last year of, of 140 million in revenue. And, it, of course, it's more than that now. But, the, but, the, but uh, it's, it's, it's doing well. It's a, it's a, it's a high-growth company. And, and I think that, um, th- that is be- because we, we, we sort of figured out fairly early that we needed to do some things to encourage people to do more than just browse. Most, most online learners come and listen to a few lectures. The great majority just come and watch a couple of lectures and drop away. Um, the, by, by giving offering credentials and then subsequently by putting assessments behind the paywall, we got people to basically decide, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to pay and I'm going to get to take tests and I'm going to pass. So, so from instead of having, you know, five or 6% of the people who initially signed up complete, now 60% to two-thirds complete, even though they're paying only $49 a month. Um, they're, they're, they're much more prone to completion because of that. So the, one of the things, in the, you know, in the, if you read the press, you would think, you know, MOOCs were a great idea, but it had no business model. It's failed. That's not true. We have a very successful business model, and it's been enhanced by two things in the last few years, one of which is to go into companies and to governments to train work, the, the workforce and to actually, you know, have curate the content direct the courses to the right audiences to acquire the skills that people need to advance to the next step in their jobs. And that business is growing at an enormously rapid rate and looks, very, looks to be very successful. And then, of course, we're also going up the value chain to offering degrees based on the stackable courses and specializations, which are groups of courses, um, uh, into degree programs. And we're focusing on the master's level because that's the type of education that's you know, professional education that's high on content and less on hand-holding than, than um, let's say, an undergraduate degree. So it actually works better online than an undergraduate degree. 
and we are finding great receptivity there as well. So you, you, you referenced your successor. So you came into Coursera, and, and, and we were an investor before you came in, um, and you did an absolutely um, amazing job taking what was a very interesting idea but making it a very successful, thriving business. And then you stepped down last summer, or I guess, no, a year and a half ago. So what was sort of the thinking with that? Well, actually, that was the deal. I mean, I was was 67 years old when I started the job, and and we looked at it, you know, when I was talking to the uh, investors and the board, uh, that the idea was, you know, do about three years and help to build this into a real company, and... And then, you know, we're not going to go public with a 74-year-old CEO, so it would probably be sensible to migrate you into just an advisory role and bring in a younger person to lead the company to the next stage. And it's worked out, I think, quite well. So in Silicon Valley, you know, you've seen these disruptive technologies, and often they don't happen as fast as what people initially expect, but but then they actually, in 10 years, you know, long term, they actually are bigger. Do you think MOOCs are going to follow that kind of path? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And the, and as is always the case in that same paradigm, which is that you know, you always underestimate, overestimate what new innovations will do in the first three years, and underestimate what they'll do in the next thirty. I mean, I think the, uh, I think what we're already seeing is it's the unanticipated directions that have been taken. When MOOCs started, everybody thought, oh. This is the solution to the cost disease of undergraduate education. Mike Horn is going to the program tomorrow. I'm sure he's going to tell you about MOOCs from that perspective, which, which is a reasonable perspective. That's an important problem. But, but I actually never believed that had anything to do with the potential of MOOCs because and, – and that is to say, I didn't think it was going to be – it was going to be a long time before we took – a standardized, high-quality calculus course from one school and used it everywhere and saved money. Um, that's just for the reason Joseph articulated earlier, which is faculties are the source of resistance. That's just going to be a long time before that happens. But what, so what is the audience for MOOCs? It's not undergraduates. Eleven percent of Coursera's students are twenty are under twenty-two. Eleven percent. Eighty-nine percent are older. Two-thirds are in the sweet spot of 22 to 40. And what are those people doing? The great majority of them are looking for career advancement, and they're focused on courses that will help them do that. So business, technology, data science, personal skills, public speaking and writing and things like that. And, that, and, that's, and those are things people pay for. So the business model turned, into, turned out to be entirely focused on this skill acquisition uh, domain and that's and if you ask what's MOOC's biggest impact going to be in ten years, it's going to be helping the world through the workforce transformation problem that a lot of people in this conference have been articulating, which is how do we match people's skills to the jobs, the skill requirements of changing jobs. And so, look at Coursera. Obviously, has different legs to the the learning platform and the corporate learning um, leg which was started when you got there, um, you know, kind of d- developed... With organic- Julia's help. Right. Well, and, 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 and booming. So did it surprise... I mean, what was sort of the, both the thought process? So you talk about this need of corporate, the corporations and CEOs and how that, that leg really developed. Yeah. Well, I think, 
I think this is a natural because, you, you know, um, I mean, the insight is companies spend a lot of money on training. They, they, I mean, a bunch of it is on mandatory compliance training. But they also spend money trying to upskill their, their workers, teach them. In the past, much of it was around, you know, the GE way or the IBM way or the Hewlett Packard way that, that they were teaching their, their uh, employees about company policies and company philosophy and company approaches. But there was also a significant amount of work on, you know, kind of generic upskilling. And I think when we came in and said, look, you, you don't have to do this with your own internal trainers or more commonly outsource training companies that come in and offer these courses, you can do it at an extremely low cost with our MOOCs with the best professors in the world and in data science, computer science, and business skills and personal development skills. We can offer you those at a very low price point and highly scalable. You can be sure that your employees around the world are getting the exact same material, which would not normally be the case if you're doing it you know, with an in-house labor force. Um, so it's been, it's been appealing to a lot of companies, and it's growing very, you know, very fast. So talking about you know, sort of broader higher education and thinking about the trends of, of, in higher education, you know, one, you know, do you think the value of the degree is going to be more or less 10 years from now, and how is that being augmented, dis- disrupted, with things like credentials and other ways that people are referencing their, their knowledge? Um, I think augmented more than disrupted. That is to say, I think, look, today the, the wage premium for, life, lifelong wage premium for a college degree relative to a high school degree is still 70%. It's been 70% for about 20, 30 years. And before that it was 45 or 50%. I mean, it's a substantial, no, Acquiring micro skills that help you with a particular job is not going to replace that. It's not of the same order of magnitude. I mean, having the humanities, having the general education that an American undergraduate degree provides, which gives you broad problem-solving skills, broad ability to cope with the world, exposure to multiple disciplines so that you're flexible and nimble and can see things from different perspectives, I mean, all of the, and, and, and practice in critical thinking, whether it's through literary criticism or history or physics or chemistry, you learn, it, 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 the, the, at least the philosophy and pedagogy of schools in this country, the, the best ones, the better ones, and most of them, is uh, teach people how to think for themselves, think critically, and expose them to a lot so they're intellectually nimble and flexible. We're not going to do that anytime soon. With, with what I'm talking about, which is acquiring specific skills, mastering certain bodies of content that will help prepare you for particular jobs. That, they're complementary things. They're, 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 we're going to see both. Degrees will still be very valuable, and credentials, micro-credentials of all types and varieties, up to and including master's degrees, will be, will be very valuable too. So using your crystal ball, give more perspective on the future of higher education. Do you think... Uh, degrees or think ed, uh, think university education is going to be more or less expensive 10 years from now what impact does a Coursera have with has a you know, radically different pricing model do you think there are going to be more universities less or the same 10 years from now and the organization structure of the university do you think the, the traditional structure of the university is going to change those are big questions I, I think the 
you know, there's, there's some chance that over a period of time that we can bend the cost curve by substituting technology for live teaching in residential universities so that I'm, I'm, I think over the long run, I'm optimistic that that can happen. I don't think it's going to happen very soon. I do think for a variety of reasons, the principal one being demographic, we have too many small liberal arts colleges. It's not, it's not sustainable. So, and, and as Joseph was saying, under-enrolled, under you know, only 35% of the schools are filled. So that's going to happen with or without online technology. Um, to what extent will people choose um, an, alternative an alternative to an undergraduate education? I think there'll be some number of people, particularly in technical fields and in, in, in computing, people just too impatient to want to get a general education will go you know, to a boot camp and go get a job. And, and tech firms will hire brilliant 19-year-olds who've had a... 18-month experience training up for those jobs without the general education, and they'll probably do fine. But they're not going to do as well as the people who take four years and get a true, truly broad education and are going to wind up you know, running the tech division of the, of the company they work for. So and it was something that we didn't touch on when we were given some kind of data around Coursera is how global it is. So um, one... Today, 78% of the students are? 78% uh, are ex-U.S. Yeah, 78% yeah. are outside the United States. And what do we learn from other... And, and you've been very global for a long time. You took Yale to China before people knew where Beijing was. Um, talk about what do you... How do you see... What do you learn from these markets and how they look and value education and prioritize? You know, we talk about a China or a Singapore, which I know you have a lot of experience with as well. Um. Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, China is a fascinating case because they've invested a, just an enormous amount of money in trying to build up their universities, and they've made considerable progress. I mean, from at least a research perspective, <clears throat> they've broken into the elite tiers of higher education, which in a short period of time, in, in a 25-year in a period, which is astonishing. So, so, I mean, you have a school like Tsinghua went from, you know, not in the world's top 200 to being the world's top 20. I mean, or nearly. It's quite remarkable. So, um, so there's a lot of investment. But China is still very closed, and Coursera has not been able to penetrate China very well because of the firewall that slows us down and the control. At the if you wanted to be inside the firewall, you'd really have to be subject to regulation by the Ministry of Education, and that's that's a whole different thing in this current age. So. Um, so it's not, I don't, you know, th there is a lot of indigenous um, online education in China, but online degrees have not taken off. In fact, the earlier attempt to make them take off there was a failure, and, and uh, they were low, the, the result was very low quality and sort of pulled back. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, I think they'll probably, for the most part, go their own way, and they're, you know, and they're doing a pretty amazing job, I think. Singapore, even more amazing. To, in terms of the general level of education, the quality of K through 12 education there is phenomenal, and the universities have really become very strong. I'm going to ask you the same question or a variation of the question that Julie asked Joseph, and that is, why is it so difficult for universities to innovate? And what what advice would you give if they you know to, to innovate? To, to, to innovate for universities. How to innovate? 
universe, it's, <laughs> I think I'm very much aligned with Joseph's talk earlier. That is, it's, it's hard to innovate within universities. And the, the truth is things that will succeed do require a number of individual faculty to turn out to be champions and, and pursue the cause. And you're, you're just not going to get innovation by majority vote. I mean, it, the, only, the only constituency more conservative than university faculties are university students, actually. <laughs> When it comes to changing the rules of the institution, when it comes to politics, that's different. But when it comes to actually changing anything in their experience, students are very conservative. Faculty are extremely conservative. So when I wanted to do major change in Yale, and I think there were several areas, I mean, I invested heavily in redeveloping the city of New Haven. Now, if I if I'd asked the, the faculty, should, it, should we spend, you know, XXX million dollars of... of uh, of our money redeveloping downtown New Haven to, to strengthen the environment in which we work and to, and to help, um, help Yale's overall reputation in attracting students and faculty. No one would, I mean, wouldn't have gotten a positive vote on that. But so it created a, a different, a, a structure sort of outside of faculty governance. You know, you basically go create a new office with a new vice president charged with that. I did that for New Haven. I did it for internationalizing the university. I did it for online learning. Um, and that's, I think, the way to change things is to get a leader who's entrepreneurial and dynamic and build faculty support individual by individual, getting some champions and then getting a dean or two, and then you're on your way. So you have a remarkable family. Um, but, but one, uh, just uh, curious, you have your son, John, is the head of the Stanford Business School. So, do you give him any advice, or and if you do, what, what do you what do you say to him? No, I don't give him advice. I just take pleasure in watching him figure it all out for himself. <laughs> so, if you were giving advice to uh, not only a student, just a person, because I think we're all going to be lifelong students. I mean, if you were going to kind of build a, a plan to how to be an educated, productive person with a purposeful life, I mean, how would you think about kind of creating that, that roadmap? To be an educated, productive person, um, I, well, first... What, what, what kind of quick, I mean, think of just like... The, the first thing that comes to mind is go to Yale College, but, but sorry. But, um, <laughs> but the second thing that comes to mind is we can do it even better. We can start our own college. And which we did in Singapore, the Yale and U.S. College, which got around all the problems that Joseph indicated with the faculty because we had no faculty. So we could design the curriculum and then hire the faculty to teach it. And a, a, a handful of like-minded Yale faculty and I basically worked together to design what I think as a liberal arts curriculum is probably the gold standard today. And, and uh, you know, because it, it, it has a common curriculum so that all students in the school take 12 of their 32 courses together, synchronously at the same time. They, they, um, they, they, read, they, they, they are reading the classics of both Western and Asian literature, philosophy, history um, to, uh, together. And, comp- and uh, you know, the idea of a great books course that recognizes that Aristotle and Confucius were contemporaries and bounces one one set of ideas off the other. Amazing. How do we get people to teach it? You know, Coalition of the Willing, we recruited for this, and we got unbelievably great people, mostly junior faculty. Um, but it's, it, it's a fantastic 
educational experience. So um, I could ask you questions all night, uh, and I'm sure people would like to stay here all night and hear those questions, but um, we're, we're, I'm going to ask you one more question, and we'll, then we'll open it up to, to people here for a couple questions, but we're going to be, be done in the next five minutes, so you can start looking at your phone if you already haven't, Bill Salmon, who's your birthday, so I guess you can kind of... It's a real Harvard... Any event. Um, so just, and, and, and uh, you know, so when you look at Coursera and all the things that have happened there, because I do think it is a super important revolutionary company, and, 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 and frankly, um, you know, your, your involvement catalyzed a bunch of it. What are you most proud of? What are you most excited about? Uh, well, I think we, 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 we I, I think that we, that, the one thing I'm most proud about is I was I actually was able to accomplish the mission, which was take this great idea and make it a viable company, and and we did that in many ways, not just in terms of revenue, but in terms of culture, in terms of the quality of people we we recruited, um, uh, in terms of the goodwill and high um, highly functional relationships we have with our university partners, all of that. I'm very proud of that. That's good. You should be. So, a couple questions before we wrap it up. Daniel. Yeah. Uh, Rick, if you, if you looked out... Thanks, Rick. If you looked out, you picked the time frame, five years, ten years. What would Coursera look like? What would be the bulk of the activity or the revenues coming from if we give yourself enough time to not be constrained by you know, near-term constraints? I, I think um, if you think about essentially three revenue streams that we have now. There's the, there's the MOOC business. It's been still growing very, you know, significantly. There, it's the biggest, still the biggest share of the business. There's the enterprise business, which is growing really fast and will soon be as large as the MOOC business. And then there's the degree business, which is, which is growing more slowly because it really takes time to ramp up and get these degrees on, on boarded and started. And then most all of our schools want to start small with a pilot class of 100 and then grow to 1,000 or 2,000. And so that's growing. That, that, that one's going to take longer to grow and it's going to be the biggest. Uh, so in other words, I think if you look at it as 10 years from now, the revenue from degrees will be first, enterprise second, and I, uh, direct-to-consumer MOOCs third would be my guess. Um, and, you know, it would be a substantial business. And the whole industry will be... Big, you know. It's, I mean, when you throw in degrees, this is gonna—I don't know—fifty billion dollar business in ten years. I mean, it'll be substantial. Not, not Coursera, although that'd oh, be actually, great at war, but the industry. Yeah. All right. Two more questions. Michael, we have our next one over here. Uh, so you, uh, sorry. So you mentioned two data points earlier. One was the decline in the... Tr- Would you introduce yourself? I, yes. I, that was Daniel Hamburger. Hi, my name is Sujoy Roy. I'm, uh, I own a company called Visit Days in Washington... I'm sorry, in New York City. Um, so you, you, you introduced two data points. One was the traditional institution liberal arts colleges declining significantly, especially 30%, I think you mentioned, you know, liberal arts colleges may not exist. And then the second data point you mentioned was on the percentage of students in Coursera, specifically to Coursera that were the traditional 18-year-old students in under 21, essentially. That was the lowest percentage. Uh, if the traditional college is not to exist the same way as it does today, and those parents are not sending their students right now to a Coursera to, to sort of get 
what they would have gotten at a traditional liberal arts college that may shut down in, in the near future. Where, what do you think is happening there, and where do you see that shift occurring for that traditional student? I'm not, I'm not sure you're, you're saying if it's not the case that the MOOCs are substituting for exactly, college, yeah, yeah. What what is why and is if the these, any of these schools do shut down? Yeah. Well, part of it's just demographics. We're we're going to work our way through the grandchildren of the baby boomers in another decade or, or so, and so that and, and after that. Um, there's going to be decline in the in the in the population of 18 to 22 year olds. So uh, unless, of course, we change our immigration policy, um, but we'll leave that aside. Um, but uh, the um, so so I think that's that's a that's a major that's actually the major driver I think. Um, but also the also the fact that there will be these alternative pathways. Which which could you know could be MOOCs, they could be boot camps, they could be other kinds of vocational training, other innovative models of, you know, it, it, I was inter- it was interesting. Uh, I mean, it is a paradox to me that the northeastern model doesn't have more followers because it's a great model for the right kind of kid. It's really it really is a great model, and I mean, I think Antioch did the same thing for a long time, but there there aren't many schools that do that. But we, you may see more migration in that direction and more new models starting that are basically, you know, combination work-study models. So thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Awesome job. Thank you.